0: this is section one hundred and eighty three of mark twain the complete interviews this librivox recording is in the public domain interview number one hundred and twenty three a e thomas mark twain a humorist's confession new york times first magazine section november 26, 1905. section one page five mark twain will be seventy years old on thanksgiving day and he has never done a day's work in his life. He told me so himself, sitting in one of the cheerful, spacious rooms of the old-fashioned, stately New York house, which he will probably call his city home as long as he lives. I probably started upon hearing this unlooked-for statement from the lips of the good gray humorist, for he repeated emphatically, "'No, sir, not a day's work in all my life.' what i have done i have done because it has been play if it had been work i shouldn't have done it who was it who said blessed is the man who has found his work whoever it was he had the right idea in his mind mark you he says his work not somebody else's work. The work that is really a man's own work is play, and not work at all. Cursed is the man who has found some other man's work and cannot lose it. When we talk about the great workers of the world, we really mean the great players. Of the world the fellows who groan and sweat under the weary load of toil that they bear never can hope to do anything great how can they when their souls are in a ferment of revolt against the employment of their hands and brains the product of slavery intellectual or physical can never be great i'm glad you came to see me today as i'm up and about which i shouldn't have been if i had been doing anything of consequence you're surprised at that are you well i've found that whenever i've got some work to do you mean play of course i ventured of course of course but we're all slaves to the use of conventional terms and i'll stick to them to avoid confusing you whenever i've got some work to do i go to bed i got into that habit some time ago when i had an attack of bronchitis Suppose your bronchitis lasts six weeks. The first two you can't do much but attend to the barking and so on. But the last four I found I could work if I stayed in bed, and when you can work you don't mind staying in bed. I liked it so well that I kept it up after I got well there are a lot of advantages about it if you're sitting at a desk you get excited about what you are doing and the first thing you know the steam heat or the furnace has raised the temperature and till you've almost got a fever or the fire in the grate goes out and you get a chill or if somebody comes in to attend to the fire he interrupts you and gets you off the trail of that idea you are pursuing. So I go to bed. I can keep an equable temperature there without trying and go on about my work without being bothered. Work in bed is a pretty good gospel, at least— FOR A MAN WHO'S COME, LIKE ME, TO THE TIME OF LIFE WHEN HIS BLOOD IS EASILY FROSTED. This was queer talk for those virile lips. The only frost you can perceive about Mark Twain is in his hair, and this is a crisp, invigorating frost, like that of a sparkling November morning. "'Well, Mr. Clemens,' I said, "'what you say about work and play may be true.' but a good many people would think that the immense amount of labor you went through to pay the debts of the publishing house of c l webster and Company, after that firm went to smash was entitled to be called by the name of hard work not at all all i had to do was write a certain number of books and deliver a few hundred lectures as for traveling about the country from one place to another for years, the nuisances of getting about and bad hotels, and so on, those things are merely the incidents that everyone expects to meet in life. The people who had to publish my books, the agents who had to arrange my lecture tours, the lawyers who had to draw up the contracts and other legal documents they were the men who did the real work my part was merely play if it had been work i shouldn't have done it i was never intended for work never could do it can't do it now don't see any use in it it occurred to me to ask Mr. Clemens to tell the secret of the vital hold he has had for years upon the most intelligent people of the English-speaking world, a grip upon the public mind such as no mere humorist has ever held or ever could hold. Well, well he answered, I know it is a difficult thing for a man who has acquired a reputation as a funny man to have a serious thought, and put it into words, and be listened to respectfully. But I thoroughly believe that any man who's got anything worth while to say will be heard if he only says it often enough. Of course, what I have to say may not be worth saying. I can't tell about that. But if I honestly believe I have an idea worth the attention of thinking people, it's my business to say it with all the sincerity I can muster. They'll listen to it if it really is worthwhile, and I say it often enough. If it isn't worthwhile, it doesn't matter whether i'm heard or not suppose a man makes a name as a humorist he may make it at a stroke as bret Hart did when he wrote those verses about the heathen Chinese. that may not be the expression of the real genius of the man at all he may have a genuine message for the world then let him say it, and say it again, and then repeat it, and let him soak it in sincerity. People will warn him at first that he's getting a bit out of his line, but they'll listen to him at last if he's really got a message, just as they finally listened to Bret Hart. Dickens had his troubles. When he tried to stop jesting the sketches by boz introduced him as a funny man but when boz began to take him seriously people began to shake their heads and say that fellow boz isn't as funny as he was is he but boz and his creator kept right on being in earnest and they listened after a time just as they always will listen to anybody worth hearing. I tell you, life is a serious thing, and, try as a man may, he can't make a joke of it. People forget that no man is all humor, just as they fail to remember that every man is a humorist. We hear that marvelous voice of Sembrick, a wonderful thing, a thing never to be forgotten. But nobody makes the mistake of thinking of Sembrick as merely a great unmixed body of song. We know that she can think and feel and suffer like the rest of us. Why should we forget that the humorist has his solemn moments?" Why should we expect nothing but humor of the humorist? My advice to the humorist, who has been a slave to his reputation, is never to be discouraged. I know it is painful to make an earnest statement of a heartfelt conviction, and then observe the puzzled expression of the fatuous soul who is conscientiously searching his brain to see how he can possibly have failed to get the point of the joke but say it again and maybe he'll understand you no man need be a humorist all his life as the patent medicine man says there is hope for all you are far from being a bad man go and reform thought I reminiscently of the man that corrupted Hadleyburg. "'The quality of humor,' Mr. Clemens went on hurriedly for him, "'is the commonest thing in the world. I mean the perceptive quality of humor. In this sense every man in the world is a humorist. The creative quality of humor—' the ability to throw a humorous cast over a set of circumstances that before had seemed colorless is of course a different thing but every man in the world is a perceptive humorist everybody lives in a glass house why should anybody shy bricks at a poor humorist or advise him to stick to his trade when he tries to say a sensible thing even the english i suggested the english don't deserve their reputation they are as humorous a nation as any in the world only humor to be comprehensible to anybody must be built upon a foundation with which he is familiar if he can't see the foundation the superstructure is to him merely a freak like the flat-iron building without any visible means of support something that ought to be arrested you couldn't for example understand an english joke yet they have their jokes plenty of them there's a passage in parkman that tells of the home life of the Indian, describes him sitting at home in his wigwam with his squaw and papooses, not the stoical, icy Indian with whom we are familiar, who wouldn't make a jest for his life, or notice one that anybody else made, but the real Indian that few white men ever saw, simply rocking with mirth at some tribal witticism that probably wouldn't have commended itself in the least to parkman and so you see the quality of humor is not a personal or a national monopoly it's as free as salvation and i am afraid far more widely distributed but it has its value i think the hard and sordid things of life are too hard and too sordid and too cruel for us to know and touch them year after year without some mitigating influence some kindly veil to draw over them from time to time to blur the craggy outlines and make the thorns less sharp and the cruelties less malignant mr clemens doesn't mind being seventy years old but he isn't especially gay about it when our anniversaries roll up too high a total he said we don't feel in a particularly celebratory mood we often celebrate the wrong anniversaries and lament the ones we ought to celebrate End of interview number 183, read by John Greenman.